Well, I hope you guys got plenty to eat and uh, hope you're starting to get dry after a really entertaining game of, what do you call that, slip and slide, dodgeball, or do y'all come up with a name for it? No, we know what gaga ball is. I'm talking about that slip and slide game. That was awesome. It was fun to watch. So hope you guys uh, hope you guys had a good time with that. Um, just want to say before we get started with this second lesson, be sure to tell the Jenkins families thank you at some point for this weekend. Would not have been made possible without them. The food they're providing, the space they're providing, and just the love of Christ that they're showing over the course of the weekend. I know that um, you know from your perspective, you're like, oh, you know. What is saying thank you really have to do other than being polite? It really goes a long way. Speaking from the perspective of a minister, it goes a long ways to see uh, that your work is impacting others. So I just want to lay that on your heart. Be sure to go to them personally before the end of gospel camp and be sure to express your thanks and gratitude for a great weekend. Um, I want to give you something that I hope will pique your interest for the remainder of our time together tonight. I don't say this as an exaggeration. I'm being as, as honest and as straightforward as I can be. What we're about to study right now is amongst some of the most, in our current day, controversial passages in all of Scripture. I mean, this is a passage of Scripture that literally some Christians in some churches will not preach. They will not preach this text or teach this text or talk about this text because this text goes against the thinking of the world around us and it goes against the thinking of the natural man. And that thinking is this, that man is in control of his own destiny. That man in and of himself is the final authority of what he wants to do and where He wants to go. And we're going to find out tonight from the Word of God that God Himself is absolutely sovereign and He's in absolute control over everything in this universe, including your life and mine. From the macro level, big picture, down to the most intricate details. I'm talking down to the smallest atom and molecule. God is absolutely sovereign over all things. That's what we're going to see manifested in this text amongst many other truths. And Lord willing, I I can only hope and pray that all of us will be basking in the glory of God, worshiping Him for His character after we encounter Him in His Word, particularly in verses 3-6 to of Ephesians 1. So, having said that, by way of introduction, I hope you're interested at least in what we have to consider tonight. Uh, But with that in mind, go ahead and open back up to our text, Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 6 will be our focus, but as I mentioned in our previous lesson, we're going to read all 14 verses just to see the flow of Paul's thought being developed and hopefully to become better acquainted with this text. I want us meditating on this passage as we advance throughout gospel camp. Let me begin reading here. In verse 1, you follow along with me in your copy of the Word of God as I read. Ephesians 1, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes the following under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus and who are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you in peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on the earth. In Christ also, 
We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to His purpose, who works all things after the counsel of His will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of His glory. In Christ you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. This is the Word of the living God, and may He write its eternal truths upon our hearts tonight and throughout the remainder of Gospel Camp. Well, as we prepare to examine this particular text, I would imagine that there are at least four categories of people represented in this room tonight. Four categories of people represented right now in this room tonight. And without a doubt, depending on which of those four categories you find yourself in, you will likely bring several presuppositions. You will likely bring several pre-commitments of thought that will drastically impact your approach to Ephesians 1, verses 3-6. to Lord willing, I just want to go over each of these four categories that might be here tonight, so that, Lord willing, by the end of this introduction, we can lay aside as many pre-commitments as possible that could stand in our way of accurately understanding what Paul is saying in this portion of his letter. Sound fair? But let's, let's just get a clean slate here. Let's get to the bottom line of the bottom line before we get into the weeds of what Paul has for us in tonight's text. Let's start by considering the first category of people in our audience. Category number one. These people, people in this category, these people are followers of Jesus Christ who have either studied this passage before, or they've at least heard of the truths we're going to be talking about tonight from their pastor, parents, or some other trusted Christian that they know and have a close relationship with. I'd imagine there's several of those types of people here given the context in which this is. Group from solid churches, group of homeschool students being raised in a godly home. Probably many of you finding yourselves in that first category here tonight. And that's fine. Praise the Lord for that. But if you fall into that first category, don't just check out for the rest of the night. My prayer for you is that you'll be encouraged by the truths found in verses 3-6 to of Ephesians 1. And that your response to tonight's message will propel you to behold your God. To worship the Most High in spirit and in truth. Maybe unlike anything that you've ever offered to Him in your whole life. Because your heart and soul is just consumed with the riches of what we're going to be unpacking tonight. Category number one. Second category. Category number two. People in this particular group are those who are followers of Jesus Christ but they've never been exposed to the truths found in this text. That's possible. I'm very familiar with churches and Christians, some of whom I'm close to, that that frankly have never really interacted with some of the concepts and truths we're going to be talking about tonight. So if you fall into this second category, if you've never read the book of Ephesians, if you've never talked about this idea of God's sovereignty, of God predestining all things from before the foundation of the world, any of those categories of truth, if that's you tonight, then my prayer for you is to just trust the truth contained in God's Word. Let Scripture speak for itself. Surrender yourself to this passage. Don't try to manipulate the text if you don't like what it says Allow God to be God. Allow His Word to speak clearly. Because, my friends, what we find for people that get upset about this passage and other similar passages, it's not that the truth in the text is unclear. It's perfectly clear. The problem is, many people read what's found in passages like this and they say, I do not like how God is portrayed in this text. That is not my conception of God. That goes against everything I've ever thought about God and everything I've ever heard about God. Don't allow yourself to fall into that category of thought if you find yourself in this second category of people. Category number three, third category that pertains to tonight's lesson, probably the most dangerous category you can fall into here, is somebody who has grown up in a Christian home, It's somebody who currently attends a 
Bible-teaching, God-exalting church, and yet, you've not surrendered yourself to the Lordship of Christ. You have not bowed the knee in repentance and faith to your Creator. The reason I say that's the most dangerous place to be is if you fall into this category, you probably have heard some of the things I'm going to be talking about tonight. And it's just head knowledge. It's something that you've stored in your mind. You've rolled your eyes at it. And it hasn't changed your life. If you find yourself in that third category, my prayer and plea for you is that you would finally and definitively turn to Jesus Christ in faith. Take the head knowledge that you've amassed over the years and apply it to your life. Be transformed and shaped by God's Word, for that is what He calls us to do. He has created us to worship Him and serve Him wherever He puts us in this life. Be that kind of man or woman after coming to this text and after spending this weekend at gospel camp if you find yourself in that third category. Fourth category now. And I doubt there's many in this room. I think if I had to guess, you're either in category one or three. Just, just I mean, I have no basis for that, but kind of understanding um, the context of the students, the context of the families, the churches. You probably are a believer and you've been exposed to this truth or you've been raised in a really good church and home and you just haven't surrendered to Christ. But there is a possibility you could be in that second category or this fourth category. And the fourth category is this. You've never heard of any of this before. Maybe you're here tonight and you've never been to church. You've never heard the gospel. This is all brand new. And if that's you, praise the Lord. It is God's favor on your life to be here this weekend. Because the truth that you're being exposed to this weekend is, is, is truth that's not communicated far and wide throughout most of American evangelicalism. You're getting the unadulterated gospel. You're getting the fullness of God's word. Praise the Lord for that. If you're in that fourth category, receive the truth by faith. If you have any questions, and this goes for all other people, if you have any questions about what we talk about here in a few moments, come to me. Come to Dylan. Come to Dustin. Come to, to all the other helpers that are here this week. This week, and excuse me, we are here to serve you in any way that we can. And that includes answering any questions that you might have about Christianity or about any of the concepts we're going to be talking about here in a few moments. So hopefully that that allows you to kind of sit here and think, okay, where do I fall into this realm or spectrum, if you will? Am I in category one, two, three, or four? wanted to give us that, that little um, introductory thought, if you will. So I think it's important when we come to a text like this to try to lay aside any baggage we might be carrying into our study of God's Word. So having said that now, let me just give you the outline of how we're going to handle verses 3 to 6, and then we'll dive right into the text. As you know in your workbooks, I've summarized the central theme of verses 3 through 6 in this way. The Gospel is rooted in eternity past. It's the central theme undergirding verses 3 to 6 of Ephesians 1. The Gospel is rooted in eternity past. And there are three distinct perspectives that Paul employs in these verses to show the gospel's eternal roots. Three perspectives found in the text that's going to structure everything we're going to say over the rest of this lesson. First perspective that Paul uses to demonstrate the gospel's eternal roots is found in verse 3. I've labeled this perspective God, the author of of the gospel. Perspective number one, verse three. God, the author of the gospel. Second, second perspective found in verses four to five. God, the architect of the gospel. And third perspective, verse six, I've identified this perspective from Paul as God, the aim or the goal of the gospel. I'm a Baptist, so I've got to you know, use alliteration. So uh, if aim's a little bit weird, that's all that I mean by that. God, the goal or the aim of the gospel. So um, having said this outline for you and should be clearly communicated in your workbooks, let's now shift to verse 3. Notice verse 3 in your Bible. Let's take a look at how verse 3 communicates Paul's first perspective, namely God as the author of the gospel. Notice what Paul writes. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing 
in the heavenly places in Christ. This is a word of praise being rendered by the Apostle Paul. With these words of praise, you would think Paul is writing the book of Ephesians from a Roman palace. You would think he is enjoying the the most health and wealth and prosperity you could ever enjoy in this life. He's just overwhelmed with the blessings of God. But my friends, get this. Paul writes these words of praise not within the confines of a Roman palace, but he writes them within the confines of a Roman prison. These are the words being written by a man who has been put in prison for his faith in Jesus Christ, for his taking the Gospel to all the Roman Empire in the middle of the first century. At the time of this letter's authorship, Paul is in the middle of serving a two-year prison sentence. And think about what was going through the mind of the early church at this time. We talked in our last message. Paul was a big deal, right? I mean, he, he was in a class of his own. He's impacted tens and tens of billions of people, whether Protestant, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, even atheists who study the Bible for entertainment or for purely academic purposes. Paul has impacted the world like very few have ever impacted the world. It's a big deal. So what do you think the early church is thinking about here with their top guy, as it were, their top missionary, their their chief apostle, guy who either directly wrote or oversaw the writing of more than half of the New Testament? Let me just put it to you this way. Most modern-day strategy experts on how to grow a church or how to allow a ministry to flourish, they wouldn't have drawn up this plan. I mean, if you want... Christianity to thrive from human perspective, you don't put your best asset from human perspective locked away in a prison. You don't keep your best preacher, your best theologian, your best missionary tucked away in a small corner in the Roman Empire. It's not what you do. But that's exactly what God purposed here. Paul knew that God was absolutely sovereign over His present circumstances and that God often uses what is deemed foolish by man to manifest His holy and eternal wisdom. In fact, just five years before writing this offering of praise at the beginning of Ephesians, he wrote in the the book of Corinthians, first letter of Corinthians, that God's wisdom is manifested in human folly, human foolishness. What else did Paul know? as he offers this expression of praise from a Roman prison? What is he trying to comfort his Ephesian readers with who may have been disturbed by Paul's imprisonment? Well, as we find in this text, and as Paul wrote just a few years earlier in Romans 8, he knew that God is in absolute control over everything and that God had him right where he wanted to be to accomplish the very purposes he had for Paul's life at that season in his life from before the foundation of the world. Paul was resting in the kind providence of an all-knowing and an all-powerful God who he knew as Father through faith in Jesus Christ. And about that fatherhood concept that Paul knew about, he knew that regardless of what circumstances he was in, that God would give him a peace that surpasses all understanding through the ministry work of the Holy Spirit. That he can be content, whether in, in, in sickness or in health, in riches or in poverty, whether he was content through, uh, or whether he was full or whether he was um, hungry, he could be content and satisfied in Christ regardless of where God led him in this life. While in this Roman cell in the early 60s, he wrote those very truths in the fourth chapter of Philippians, namely through uh, verses 4 to 13. Look at some of those texts if you want some encouragement later tonight. 1 Corinthians 1 where he talks about the wisdom of God through the folly of man. Romans 8.28 and following, the absolute sovereignty of God over every aspect of life and history. And of course, Philippians 4, verses 4 to 13, the reality that the believer can be content in any circumstance because God is on the throne and He's a good and gracious Father to His own. So it goes without saying that Paul was enamored with the glorious character of the triune God. His mind was consumed with how the Lord had revealed Himself in creation and in Scripture. And that is the basis for those towering expressions of praise in verse 3. Read them again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The key to understanding what Paul's saying here is the word bless. You understand the word bless, you unlock the meaning of verse 3. He uses it several times in verse 3. looks like three times in verse 3. And when Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, he originally wrote it in Greek. And the Greek term that he uses for bless is a word from which we get the English eulogy. Now, how many of you guys have ever heard of a eulogy before? Show of hands. Adults probably. Mac looks like he knows. So a lot of people who, you guys are sitting here, I guess you've never been to a funeral. Okay, well, praise the Lord for that if you've never been to a funeral. But someday you're going to go to a funeral and you're going to hear a eulogy read at the funeral service or at the graveside. And the purpose of a eulogy is to speak a good word or a good message about the person who's passed away. That's normally how we think of a eulogy. Well, notice this. Paul's not writing a eulogy about somebody who's passed away. He's not saying a good word about a deceased loved one. He is saying a good word about the good God that he knew and served. This is key to understanding verse 3 and all that follows in this section of Ephesians 1. From Paul's perspective, in a Roman prison, being persecuted for his faith and the advancement of Christianity, Paul is saying, in effect, God is inherently worthy of receiving all praise, all honor, all adoration, and all glory from His people, even when you're in the midst of a prison cell. He's telling those Ephesians, you praise God always because He's worthy. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice this. He, he gives the basis for why he can praise God in addition to those truths. Not only is it great meditating on the character of God, and that's the sum and substance of our faith, who God is and what he's done for us, but notice this. Paul draws his reader's attention to what God has done for him and for all Christians. If you're in Christ tonight, God's done this for you. Notice the rest of verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? On top of who He is and what He's done. Notice, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Why praise God? Well, quite simply, my friends, if you're a Christian, if you know God through faith in Christ, you have been the recipient of every spiritual blessing through faith in Christ. And notice this important truth too. You didn't earn those blessings. You didn't reach out and obtain those blessings. God gave those blessings to you. In an act of love and grace and mercy, He has gifted you through faith in Christ every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The God who is absolute goodness itself. The God who does not need anything outside of Himself to be who He is or to do what He does. The God who is inherently worthy to receive all honor, praise, and exaltation forevermore. That God has chosen to lavish His people with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And if that weren't enough, and I've already alluded to it several times tonight, He didn't do that because we were so great. He did that in spite of ourselves. God gave us every spiritual blessing when we had nothing to give back to Him. He did it for His own glory and because He overflows with loving kindness for those who belong to Christ. Notice Romans 11, 33-36. One of the most clear passages in all of Scripture that drives this point home. I just knocked off my ring from my finger. Apologize for that distraction. I'll put it away so I don't have to play with it. It's a little bit, a little bit hot in here, so normally I can, I can jiggle it. and doesn't... Anyways, we'll, we'll just move on. Good lighthearted moment there. Romans 11, 33-36. You want to go to a proof text that you can pull out whenever you want to pull it out regarding God's goodness and lavishing blessings upon His people? Or do you want to go to a text in Scripture that shows that God is the giver of all things in this world and that everything should be attributed to His own glory and His own power and His own excellency. This is your proof text. This is, this is a great revelation 
of the character of God. Paul writes this a few years before writing the book of Ephesians. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how unfathomable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became His counselor? Rhetorical question, nobody. Verse 35, or who has first given to Him that it would be paid back to God? Rhetorical question, nobody. Verse 36, here's the key. For from Him and through Him and to Him are some things, most things, all things, right? From Him, through Him, and to Him are all things. To Him, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So we've now seen the fact that God and God alone is the source and the author of every spiritual blessing for the believer. But what exactly are these spiritual blessings that God provides to His people? Well, I just love how God so clearly led Paul as He clearly leads all the biblical authors to provide us exactly what we need in the context of what He wants us to study and commit to our thought. Notice how clear Paul is enlisting these spiritual blessings. First spiritual blessing, verses 4 and 5. Election unto salvation. We're going to talk about that in just a few moments. Spiritual blessing number one that's been lavished upon the believer. Election unto salvation. Verses 4 to 5. Number two, we'll talk about this tomorrow, Lord willing. Redemption from sin. Verses 7 to 8. Redemption from sin. Spiritual blessing number three. Revelation of God's plan for human history. Verses 9 and 10. Fourth, a promise of future glory. And that's found in verses 11 to 12. And fifth, spiritual blessing explicitly identified by Paul in this text. Verses 13 and 14. The sealing of the Holy Spirit. So most of those we're going to talk about tomorrow and we'll, we'll kind of revisit this theme of spiritual blessings that have been given to the believer by God's grace. But hopefully that gives you a little bit of an idea at least for now, as we work through verses 3 to 6, what are these spiritual blessings? What's Paul talking about here? Hopefully that's been made clear to you. But I want us to touch now, just briefly, about some additional observations that Paul says regarding these five spiritual blessings. The nature of the spiritual blessings, if you will. What's their nature? What are they like? Well, number one... They're spiritual. They're not material. They're not earthly blessing. They're spiritual blessings. That's what Paul's talking about here. He's not talking about something you go to Target and take off a shelf. He's not talking about something tangible like this wall behind me. These are spiritual, immaterial blessings. I want to make something abundantly clear. I don't think that this will be anything new for the vast majority of you, but I'm going to say it anyways because it's good to remind ourselves of truth. Nowhere in the Bible are Christians promised a life of health, wealth, and prosperity. There's no promise in Scripture whatsoever that you and I, by virtue of being a Christian, are going to receive earthly or material blessings. Now don't get me wrong, God is extraordinarily gracious. You and I receive many incredible material and physical blessings. That comes from the hand of a good and sovereign God. But many Christians find that being a Christian doesn't give them a whole lot of benefits, earthly speaking. In fact, it brings a lot of hardship. This is exactly what Jesus promises in texts like John 16.33. He notes that in this world, His people will have trouble, but He provides an encouragement in the midst of that. Take heart, He says. I've overcome the world. When you're a Christian in a fallen, sin-cursed world you are going to experience incredible trials, tribulations, persecutions, all kinds of hardships. But my friend, know this. If you're in Christ, on the basis of what, he write, uh, on the basis of what Paul writes in Ephesians 1.3, you have every spiritual blessing you could ever need, both now and for all of eternity. So you may not be guaranteed a life of health, wealth, and prosperity now, but know that when you enter into glory, if you're in Christ, known in part now in a sin-cursed world, made visible and fully manifest 
and glory. You have an eternal inheritance that goes far beyond anything that could ever be measured or known on this side of eternity. Rest in that, believer. Rest in the spiritual blessings that God has lavished upon you in Christ. But the second, uh, the second nature of these spiritual blessings that I want us to touch on very briefly here. Um, notice this, and this is a good segue into what I just said previously about them not being something you can get at Target. These aren't blessings that are proper to the material world. They're not something you and I can grab onto. They're in the heavenly places. Now, I know that's a unique phrase. You may not be familiar with it. So let me clarify what Paul means here when he uses this phrase. When he refers to heavenly places throughout Ephesians, he uses that phrase five times. He's using it to refer to the location where Christ and the holy angels and the redeemed dwell. And he does that to stress that these blessings, they're not temporary. They're not yours on three days of the week and then they're gone the rest of the week. They're not something that you'll only experience for 10,000 years in glory and then they evaporate into thin air. These are permanent blessings that are yours in Christ. Just as it is impossible for Jesus Christ to cease to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords, just as it's impossible for that to ever happen, so also is it impossible for your spiritual blessings in Christ to ever be away, to ever be done away with, to ever evaporate, to ever cease to be null and void. They're yours forever, believer. Rest in that truth. And third and most importantly, and this pertains to both the believer and the unbeliever, every spiritual blessing, did you notice a recurring phrase throughout all the verses we read? Two words, in Christ or in Him. Over and over and over again. What's Paul saying? He's saying you cannot get one spiritual blessing apart from being in Christ. Think about that for a second. If you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ, at this very moment, you have no spiritual blessings at all that you can lay claim to. None. The only thing you know right now is the wrath and judgment of God. But if you're in Christ, You've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You've surrendered your life to His Lordship. These spiritual blessings are yours. It would be just as impossible to lose your salvation as it would be to lose these spiritual blessings that are inextricably linked to Jesus, the sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords over all of reality. Hope those were some encouraging thoughts for you tonight as we now move on to our next perspective. Perspective number two regarding the gospel's eternal roots. We just noted how God is the author of the gospel. Let's transition out to God portrayed by Paul as the architect of the gospel. How is God the architect of the gospel? Notice verses four and five. Just as God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. Believer, in the same way that God is the author of every spiritual blessing that belongs to you in the heavenly places, so also is God the architect of your salvation. In the final analysis, don't miss this. This gets us into the controversial stuff. And like I said, it's not controversial because the Bible is unclear here. It's controversial because what I'm about to share with you and what God's Word communicates on this subject from Old Testament to New Testament, it flies directly in the face of how this world thinks about God and how this world thinks about man. It may even go against how you think about those two realities. But I'm going to lay this out for you to chew on, and then I'm going to provide an abundance of Scripture to back it up, in addition to what Paul just wrote. From eternity past, God has sovereignly chosen who will ultimately come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, nobody becomes a Christian apart from the predetermined plan of the triune God. 
And I know that may be a difficult statement for some to hear tonight. But my friends, bear with me here. It is unbiblical, it's contrary to God's Word, to believe that God has not predetermined every detail of reality from before the foundation of the world. He's authored every single detail of everything that would ever be in the universe, including our eternal destinies. As the creator of all things, God is in absolute control over every square inch of the universe. There's not a single aspect of reality that God cannot point to and say, Mine. I'm sovereign. I'm God. I'm Lord. I'm the author. I'm the architect. This all exists for my glory. I do what I please with creation. Let me give you a few examples to substantiate and prove that this isn't just something taught in Ephesians 1. This is a very consistent and clear teaching from Scripture. Let's start in Exodus 4.11. Notice what God says in Exodus 4.11. This is God, by the way, what you're about to hear from His lips, as it were. Exodus 4.11. God said to Moses, Who has made the human mouth? Or who makes anyone unable to speak? Who makes anyone deaf or able to see or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? God is so sovereign, He determines every physical limitation of every person who will ever live. And it's predetermined from before the foundation of the world. Every physical limitation, every physical gift is from God's sovereign arrangement. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases. God does not sit back and act surprised over what happens in the world. He's orchestrating every aspect of the world to accomplish His eternal purposes. Daniel 2.21 and 22, it is God who changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and He appoints kings. He gives wisdom to wise men. He gives knowledge to people of understanding. It is God who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with Him. That's Romans 11.33-36 in the Old Testament, is it not? He, he gives as He pleases to whomever He pleases. All for His own glory. But let's look at the New Testament. What did Jesus teach about this? John 17, 6-10. In His prayer before being turned over to be crucified, Jesus prays this to the Father. He says, I have manifested Your name to the men whom You gave Me out of the world. They were Yours and You gave them to Me and they have kept Your Word. Now they have come to know that everything You have given Me is from You. For the words which you gave me, I have given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believe that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. Romans 8, 28-30, Paul wrote these words a few years before Ephesians. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom He predestined, He also called. And these whom He called, He also justified. And these whom He justified, He also glorified. That's describing the salvation of every believer. If you're here tonight and you're a Christian... That was God's means of saving you. Theologians call it the golden chain of salvation. God predestining it in eternity past, Him bringing it to full fruition through time and into eternity future. And last text I want to note, there's many more we could go to. This is just a sample. Revelation 13.8. Speaking in reference to the Great Tribulation, John writes this, All who dwell on the earth will worship the Antichrist But everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world, uh, or excuse me, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life. So if you're not written in the book of life according to John, and you're alive during the great tribulation period, you're going to worship the Antichrist, and it's going to be to your soul's demise, to your judgment. So do you see the recurring theme? 
That's a lot of scripture I just threw your way, but my friends, I just wanted to I wanted you to see it from God's word. God is sovereign in salvation. If he wants something to come to pass, he'll bring it to perfect fruition. Now, let's deal with objections now before we move on further in Paul's argument. Like a good teacher, Paul commonly faced objections, and he always anticipated those objections by reasoning with them from Scripture. Let's look at two primary objections. These are two of the most common to what I've just told you. Perhaps some of you are tempted to believe that God's sovereignty and salvation, His sovereignty, His control over all things, including the eternal destinies of people. You may say, that's not fair. That's not just. What do you mean God is the one who ultimately determines who will be saved or who won't be saved? That's just not right. Well, if you fall into that camp, you're not alone. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, he faced this particular objection And he had these words to say. Romans 9, 20-24. To the man who says, it is unfair or unjust for God to be sovereign over salvation. Paul says, who are you, O man, who questions God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and He did so to make known the riches of His glory upon vessels of mercy, which He prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom He also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. What's Paul saying? He's saying there's two classes of people. Ultimately, there are vessels which God prepares from before the foundation of the world to eternal judgment and hell for His own glory. And there are those whom He prepares for salvation. Undeserving, sinful man that He chooses to redeem for no other purpose than to glorify Himself and manifest His loving kindness to them in Christ. And what does He say at the outset of all of that? He says, if you think that's unfair... You need to remember who you are. You're nothing more than a clay pot. You're a creature. You have no right to question God. God can do whatsoever He pleases with His creation. Now, second objection that some of you guys here tonight are possibly going through your mind. Maybe not. Maybe you guys are all on the same page here. But this is a very common objection to that line of thinking. Go something like this. Well, if God is the one who predestines who will be saved and who won't be saved, He must not have predestined uh, either my salvation because I'm not a Christian or to all those people in the world who don't believe. He just must not have predestined their salvation because you know, if He did, they would be saved. So you know, what, what's the point? Right? I mean, if God's sovereign over everything, I don't have to do anything. Right? Well, for those who have that objection, I want to give you something to consider. The same man who wrote Romans 9, the same man who wrote Ephesians 1 and following, that man was the greatest evangelist and he was the greatest missionary the world's ever known. The guy who had the highest view of the absolute sovereignty of God had the highest view of the absolute responsibility that all people have when they hear the Gospel to turn away from their sins in repentance and to trust in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. The only way that man can be forgiven and reconciled to a holy God. The one name given under heaven whereby man can be saved, Jesus Christ. The one who God made sin on behalf of the believer at the cross to be sin. So that the believer can enjoy the enjoy right relationship with God for all of eternity future. And so that God's perfect justice would be satisfied in their place at the cross. What's Paul saying? Well, he's saying this, my friends. God is 100% sovereign over the eternal destiny of every person who will ever live. Man's 100% responsible to repent and believe when they are encountering divine truth. Don't believe me. Notice what he says just one chapter over in Romans. We read about the absolute sovereignty of God in Romans 9. Look at what he writes in Romans 10. 
Absolute sovereignty of God, Romans 9. Absolute responsibility of man, Romans 10. Beginning in verse 9, Paul says this, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the Scripture says, Whoever believes in Christ will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord over all, abounding in riches for all who will call on Him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So let this sink into your minds here. God is 100% sovereign over everything in reality. You and I don't have the right to question His ways, His purposes. And in fact, when we come to grips with our sin before a holy God, the Word of God says this, you turn away from your sins. You surrender to the God who's made you in His image. You let Him reign on His throne and you bow in humility before Him and you do whatever He calls you to do in His Word. You don't get to make excuses for unbelief. You don't get to punt on your responsibility to share the Gospel with all the nations. You come to Christ by faith and you take the Gospel to all the ends of the earth. Why? Because you know when you do so, God will save His own. Let me get really personal here tonight. If you're here and you're a Christian, God, being rich in mercy, chose you from before the foundation of the world to be saved. He did it knowing full well how you would sin. He knows everything about you, past, present, and future. And He chose you in Christ. And He gave you eyes to see the truth of the Gospel at the moment you believed. He gave you the gifts of faith and repentance, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. And then verse 10 of Ephesians 2, as you'll meditate on tomorrow during your quiet time, the good works you walk in as a believer, oh yeah, He prepared those too so that you might walk in them. So that your salvation is to the praise of God's glorious grace, and yet you have the privilege and the responsibility to take that Gospel to your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends, your family, and to trust God with all the details of your life and of their eternal destiny. But on the other hand, maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. And you've heard the objections tonight. And you say, well, Dewey, you know, I hear what you're saying, but man, this just completely blows my mind. And if God's like this, I just can't worship a God like that. Or, you know, maybe I am elect, maybe I'm chosen in Christ, I'll just believe some other time. Let me tell you this much right now. In God's eternal plan for your life, He puts you here tonight to hear this message. And He says, come to Christ, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and Christ will give you rest for your soul. Come, seek Christ while it is still day. Now is the day of salvation. Don't put off coming to Christ for any excuse. From eternity past, He puts you here tonight to hear this message to study the truths of Scripture, to contemplate the Gospel. And He says, if you just believe, you will be saved. And you can know, you can know that you were in Christ from before the foundation of the world. You are responsible now to make a decision if you don't know Jesus. You are responsible to surrender to Him and receive the gift of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's God as the architect of the gospel. And frankly, he's the architect of everything. He's the architect of everything. Well, tonight, we've surveyed two perspectives now that show how the gospel is rooted in eternity past. First, from verse 3, we saw God as the author of the gospel. God as the author of the gospel. Verses 4 to 5 was the second perspective. God was portrayed by the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as the architect of the gospel. And lastly, to take care of the, tonight's lesson and hopefully put us in a good spot for group discussion and for all that we'll discuss over the rest of the weekend together, I want us to consider God as the aim or the goal of the gospel. God is the aim or goal of the gospel. You'll notice that the key to this perspective is verse 6, but I'm just going to start in verse 5. Make sure we're aware of the flow of Paul's train of thought here. Verse 5. 
Paul says, In love, God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. How is God the aim of the Gospel? How is God the goal of the Gospel? Why is it that we're even here this weekend? Let me just say it to you like this. Salvation is simply a stage upon which God sovereignly chooses to make needy and perishing sinners like you and me trophies of His grace. That's what it's about, my friends. God took sinners like Paul, the Ephesians that he was writing to, you and me if you're a Christian. He took the most wretched, undeserving, unimpressive creatures. And He said, for reasons for my glory and for my purposes, for reasons known only to myself, I'm choosing them to be trophies of my grace. And they will worship Me for all of eternity. They will enjoy Me for all of eternity. They will be My ambassadors before a lost and sin-cursed world. But I'm the aim. And my glory is the goal of the Gospel. It's true, we do receive some very incredible spiritual blessings, but don't you think for a second that we're the ultimate reason for any of this? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, a tool used for training new believers during the 17th century, very beginning, question one, what is the chief end? What is the goal? What is the purpose of man? Answer, to know God and enjoy Him forever. That's your purpose. That's the purpose of the Gospel. That's what Paul's saying here. God wants you to know Him and enjoy Him forever as a redeemed, blood-bought sinner made into a trophy of divine grace. That's your purpose. You can know that tonight in your soul if you would only grab onto Christ and His promises. Trust in Jesus Christ. Live your life for His glory and watch your spiritual good be made manifest in every aspect of your existence. You will know joy forevermore in Christ. Joy unending. That's going to be where we leave it tonight regarding God as the aim of the Gospel because my friends, we're going to look in verses 11 to 14 tomorrow. And we're going to see how the Gospel is God's revelation of His glory. We're going to consider more this idea of God being glorified through the salvation of sinners. But we've seen this time and time again already. Two sermons. Two lessons. It's all about God. The Gospel is about God. And we are the recipients of blessings unimaginable. A few thoughts for you as we prepare to dismiss the small group. A few thoughts. First question I have for everybody here tonight is this. Very straightforward, very simple, no gotcha here. It's just very to the point. Are you a follower of Jesus Christ? I, I don't mean have you made a decision in the past? You said the sinner's prayer, you walked an aisle, you signed a card, you got baptized at youth camp. I mean, does your life right now reflect that you are walking in obedience to Jesus Christ and His commandments and His Word out of the overflow of a heart that loves God? Does your lifestyle reflect that you have truly come to saving faith in Christ? Very simple, straight to the point, only you know that. Ask yourself that. Let me ask another question. For those of you who say, yes, I'm a Christian, I know it. I'm walking with Christ right now. I've trusted in Him as my Lord and Savior. I've done all of that, do we? Well, here's my question now. Follow-up. Are there any things about your understanding of God, your understanding of salvation? Are there any details that you need to maybe start to reconfigure in your thinking about God? Maybe this is all new to you tonight, believer. Maybe you've never thought about God in this particular way or salvation from this particular perspective. 
Maybe you need to do some transforming of your theological convictions to bring them in conformity to Scripture. If that's you, that's fine. Praise the Lord for being here this weekend. Great opportunity to grow in your knowledge of God's Word. But now I want to address those who are here tonight that are not believers. There's a chance everybody here is in Christ, certainly, but it would not surprise me that given your age and given the diversity of group here, that there's probably a few of you who do not know Christ, maybe more. And here's what I leave you with. Today and tomorrow, you are being exposed to one of the richest portions of Scripture. Doesn't get any more rich and deep and soul-penetrating as this. My challenge and plea for you is simply this. Why are you not surrendered to Christ? How could you not hear of the glory of God and bow before Him, worship Him, adore Him, commune with Him all the days of your life? What's holding you back? What sin could even compare to the glory and goodness of God? You've heard the Gospel now all throughout this afternoon. All you need to do is cling to Christ. Come to Him. Don't put it off another day. Tomorrow is not promised. And the wages of sin is death, both physical and eternal in hell. Don't put off surrendering your life to Christ one more day. Receive Him as Lord and Savior through faith. This passage we just studied tonight can be true for you as a believer. Let's close in prayer. We'll dismiss the small groups. Thank you so much for your your time today. Looking forward to diving back into this passage tomorrow morning. Let's pray. Father, how can we not be humbled by what we've just considered tonight? How can we not be awestruck by your power and wisdom? Lord, there's no human being that could have ever just enacted this plan of redemption. No one could just write these words down explaining how man is saved. Every religion in the world, every worldview that is not rooted in Scripture says that man can be made right with God, that he can know God through making himself better, through earning it through his good works. That only the strong and the worthy and the wise and the powerful, that they're the ones who can make it. They're the ones who can be saved. They're the ones who can know God. Every worldview, every false religion says that in some way, shape, or form. But biblical Christianity says, oh no, we are so unworthy and undeserving. In fact, we're only who we are because of your grace and your mercy and your love. God, would every person here today and this weekend know that within their soul, Lord, awaken them to your holiness, your righteousness, your moral purity and perfection. Don't give them any grounds for excuses, Lord. I pray that you would wrestle with them all night and for the rest of their lives until you bring them to repentance and faith. Make them into a worshiper of you who who knows you and will enjoy you forevermore, Lord God. If there be anyone here tonight that does not know you through faith in Christ, that would be my prayer for them. And for those of us who do know Christ, oh, would He and you and your Holy Spirit, the triune God of our salvation, would you be more rich to us? Would you be more satisfying to us, Lord? Would we worship you in greater measure? Would we adore you with every fiber of our being growing into closer conformity to Christ? as long as you give us life to do so. Lord, may our lives count because they're geared towards you as the goal and the aim of all things in existence. Help us to take these truths to all those in our lives who we know, who we know need forgiveness of sin, who we know need to hear the truth of your self-revelation in Scripture. Give us boldness and yet give us gentleness to take this message far and wide as we have opportunities to do so. I thank you for these young men and women. I thank you for their families, for those who have volunteered to make this weekend possible. I just pray you'd move in power, Father. By your Spirit, do a work here this weekend for the good of every person here today and tomorrow and for your glory. Give us rest now as we prepare to 
go to our small group discussions and back to the host homes and rejuvenate us for the remainder of our studies through Ephesians 1, verses 1 to 14. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.